Digital Gonzo, episode 58, dated Wednesday the 22nd of February 2012, the Harry Potter movie reviews, year five, The Order of the Phoenix. It's changing out there. There's a storm coming, Harry. Just like last time. The Ministry of Magic wishes to make an announcement. The Lorris Umbridge, as High Inquisitor, will address the falling standards at Hogwarts School. Things at Hogwarts are far worse than I feared. You have been told that a certain dark wizard is at large once again. Not a lie, I saw him. Minister, the Dark Lord's return is incontrovertible. He's not back. Dolores Umbridge has replaced Albus Dumbledore as head of Hogwarts. Blimey. The Dark Lord approaches. He wants to build up his army again. If Voldemort's building up an army that I want to fight. It's your turn now. This year, I'm following some sort of wizard army. If they can do it, why not us? Tyranny will rise. I will have order! And the rebellion... The Ministry's gonna have a full uprising on their hands. ...will begin. Sort of exciting, isn't it? Breaking the rules. Who are you and what have you done with Hermione Granger? From Warner Brothers Pictures. Don't fight him, Harry. You can't win. Look at me! You will lose everything. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Harry's world is now more clearly affected by death and the reborn but hidden threat of the Dark Lord, as the Gonzo branch of Dumbledore's army returns to Hogwarts for the fifth of eight podcasts. This week we're talking about Phoenix, which remains the longest book in the Potter series, but until the final half of Deathly Hallows was the shortest film. From Gamer.Reworld, We World, returning, we have Leah Haydu. Hey. From Gonzo Planet, Sharon Shaw. Hello. And our Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher this week, from Ninja Fat Pigeons and the Gonzo Planet community cast, Chris Eason. Ahoy, hi. Let's take a look at the various lengths of the different versions of these stories. There have been some contentions on the forum as to how much was removed for the cinematic versions. At least one of our listeners, Shauna Kim, has never even seen the last four movies because of how much the adaptation of Goblet displeased him. He referred to it as, I believe, a Cliff's Notes version of the book. So let's put this one in perspective. What I've got here is various statistics. And uh, you all know how much I love statistics. I may have done graphs if I had the time. First film, Philosopher's Stone, two hours, 32 minutes long. Original book was 309 pages. And put that in perspective, the audio book, which is a nice measure of how... Because uh, we can't possibly gauge everyone's reading speed. But if you listen to just the audio book and have it as read by Stephen Fry, it's eight hours, 24 minutes. 
That's just the first one, 309 pages. Number two, two hours 41 for the film, 341 pages, and that's nine hours 43 minutes. Third film, two hours 27 minutes, so it's actually shorter than both the first two. 435 pages, so it's significantly longer as a book, and that's 12 hours and four minutes. Here's where it starts to change, because the fourth film is two hours 37 minutes, and that's a 734-page book. So that's a lot bigger. That's like that's more than twice as big. That's the first two books combined and then some. And that's 20 hours and 57 minutes of audiobook right there. So the fifth one. <laughs> Have a guess on this one. It's uh, it's 2 hours 19 for the film, 870 pages. How long would that take to read if you were Stephen Fry? 30 hours. 29 hours. Wow. And, and 6 minutes. So Half-Blood Prince is 2 hours 33 minutes long, 652 pages for the book, 20 hours 33 for the audiobook. 4, 5, and 6 form a trilogy of books that had to be cut down very significantly because of the length of the book and what they had to cram in. So when you get to film 7 and 8, it's 759 pages all told for Deathly Hallows. But if you divide it to 486 for the first film and 273 for the second part of Hallows... Uh, that's roughly 13 hours 45 for Hallows Part 1 and 7 hours 55 for Hallows Part 2. So that's a lot closer to the the earlier amounts of time they had to sort of make allowances for. From this perspective, we can see how much extra breathing space they had being able to actually include that much extra screen time. So as we can see, with the potential for 30 hours of material as read just for Order of the Phoenix then that book, along with Goblet and Half-Blood, are particularly tall orders for adaptation. For me, and while I can't speak for everyone, I know I'm not alone in this, Phoenix was where the books and the films diverged. Rowling's cast of wonderful characters and gorgeously rich world had expanded in the book so greatly that no editor would touch her, to the point that I actually found the last three books an occasionally tiresome slog to read. The films, however, got tighter and more focused because, and this spoke to the editor in me, the part that's always there in the back of my head as I prepare a podcast, the director, photographer, adaptation writer and editor all now seem to know exactly what needed to be left in and with some rare exceptions, what, let's face it, absolutely had to be let go of in order to escape a running time in the double figures. It wasn't simply that, though. From the first frame of Harry trying to cope with the various deaths that had touched upon his life, those departed that would, over the next few years, be joined by still more, the tone shifted once again, and director David Yates, with his background firmly rooted in excellent British television drama, was absolutely the right choice. For me, at least. Once again, it wasn't just me who thought this, though. The man did so well, he got to finish off the series. Uh, Joe, I suppose a good question to open with would be simply which character you find yourself identifying with most when you're writing or when you're reading what you've just written. Probably Harry, really, because I have to think myself into his head far more than any of the others because everything is seen from his point of view. But there's a little bit of me in, in most of the characters, I think, they, they say of writers that... Um, I think it's impossible not to put a little bit of yourself into any character because you have to imagine their motivation. Did it occur to you when you were planning the books, hoping the first one would be published, that so many people who have never been inside a boarding school would Mm. relate to the very particular world of an English boarding school which Hogwarts represents? Well, the truth is I've never been inside one either. Of course, I was comprehensive educated. But it was essential for the plot that the children could be enclosed somewhere together overnight. 
this could not be a day school because the adventure would fall down every every second day if they if they went home and spoke to their parents and and then had to break back into school every 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 week to um, wander around at night so it had to be a boarding school which was also logical because where would wizards educate their children this is a place where there're going to be lots of noises smells flashing lights and you would want to contain it somewhere fairly distant so that muggles didn't come across it all the time but I think that people recognize the reality of a lot of children being cloistered together perhaps more than they recognize the ambiance of a boarding school. I'm not sure that I'm familiar with that, but I think I am familiar with what children are like when they're together. The only thing uh, really about the opening that stuck out for me is again, they've cut out a lot of the Dursleys as has pretty much just been the norm through the other ones. The only problem I really have with that in this one is that it kind of downplays the frustration that Harry is is feeling and they make a really big deal about this at this point make uh, in the book. You don't quite get the feeling that he's been sending letters and getting absolutely nothing back all summer that he feels trapped that he feels helpless. Oh, I mean, you know this because that's that's kind of how it's always been, but particularly now that he has just come off of fighting Voldemort, just come off of seeing Cedric die in front of him and now he's just kind of stuck back with the Muggles like nothing happened and not not actually getting um any information to the contrary. He's far anchor in the book. I I didn't I don't like this book. Yeah. Um, when I read it, I don't know if it was the first time I read it. I read it in like a day, or less than a day, like eight hours or something. It takes thirty um, hours to read. You read faster than I Stephen Fry could possibly yeah. speak. <laughs> Stephen Fry does acting; it's easier to skim. True. Um, but yeah, he's really, really angry, but not really. I mean, he okay, for a reason, but it seems to be overblown. It seems to be, it reminded me of a bad fan fiction story that hasn't got quite got the characters right and just was like, I'm really angry. Rah, rah, rah. An 870-page bad fan fiction story. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just Harry. Uh, Harry and Dumbledore just didn't seem right for that, that yes, for the whole book because they are the two main characters. Uh, I don't know about that because he does, I mean, he does have a reason to be angry just even beyond the situation that he's in. He's being invaded his mind is being invaded by Voldemort, so he is feeling this anger that's not necessarily all his own. And I, I, don't, I don't think that that really takes it out from beyond where he is. Yeah. I think maybe the focus is a little bit different, but um, yeah, I, I, I think I think it was still right. I just I think that maybe there was a little too much attention paid to it. It's all metaphorical as a uh, an angry young man story, and it makes sense that this would be the one where he'd actually be the most frustrated because he has the least control and the most fear. As far as he's concerned, Voldemort's out there and just ready to come and kill him, and he's not even allowed to do Lumos at home. There's a bit later on where he he says it's a serious. He's angry all the time, and that bit always gets to me because, well, I've, I've suffered with uh, with issues of anger myself over over the past um, many many years. Since I, it's like I never really grew out of this phase as a teenager. I have I have periods when I could be more mature about it, but there are just sometimes I just get consumed with frustration. This is probably the the one where I started to really identify with him. A desperate need to be away from the place I was being in my mind, held captive in the place where I, I needed to get freedom from. So, yeah, that's why this, this story in particular is always going to kind of resonate with me, even though there is a magical reason why Harry's angry. There's also 
real life reasons why he has every reason to be. I was going to say it's very psychologically consistent as well. You've got the the thing in Goblet where he's the the boy who becomes a man and sort of picks up the the mantle of of taking on his responsibilities. Um, And in this one, the weight of that responsibility kind of crashes home. Yet, as you say, he's not allowed to use the skills he has to defend himself and that's um, that's something that I noticed this when we were watching it um, he seems Daniel Radcliffe seems so much older in this one um, his you know his bearing the way he talks um, and it it kind of hit me that take out the modern culture and he'd be a man at this point he would be um, being expected to take on um, a, a man's role and a man's responsibilities but there, there seems to be this sort of teenage trap in modern culture which maybe it affects boys more than it does girls, I don't know um, but it's you kind of you're not allowed to take on those um, sort of that part of your life, and and you have to sort of shine it on until you're 18. And I can see how that would cause this immense frustration cycle. And that ties in very neatly with the rest of the themes of the book, which are uh, restrictions and um, enforced order, because the this is when the ministry really starts clamping down, so you get umbrage. Everyone is, is forced to toe the line and to actually hide what they're, they're able to do and to actually effectively live a lie, toe the company line of there is no Voldemort, there is no danger, let's all learn basic spells. I was going to say the real irony of that... Um, is that the magical world is supposed to be the place where you get away from all that and that um, that all of that restriction and, and you can't do this, you can't do that is, is supposed to not be there. It is crystallised perfectly in the letters that he starts receiving. The second that he uses the right spell and the only spell he could use to defend himself against the Dementors, uh, he gets a this kind of carbon copy sent out the second a spell is detected. We don't care who you are, it's just a rule of thumb. You've used a spell, you're underage, you're expelled. Immediately. And then he gets one straight afterwards from the Central Bureaucracy. It's, it's like that episode of Futurama where Hermes is talking about the Central Bureaucracy all the time. And they go there in the end and everyone's super pedantic. They send out a second one straight. How many letters does he actually get in the book? Literary specialists? Two. Two. So he gets one that's just like sent out by rote and then one that says, oh, actually you're Harry Potter and you're doing this for a reason. We shall review your case. Is that right? Uh, more or less. Yeah. And, the, second uh, that, one, the second one is more because Dumbledore interfered because they told him what was happening. Is that right? They mm-hmm. didn't even notice the fact that it was Harry Potter who was doing this. Do you think it was that they were just basically watching him, like with their finger on the button going the second that Harry Potter uses a spell? I mean, I know Umbridge was because she sent the goddamn Dementors, but well, do you think the Ministry in general were just waiting for Harry to slip up so that they could go, right, expelled? Well, in the book, they actually... Um, well, there's a couple of things. In the book, this is not the first time he's been warned. Um, we talked about it back in I guess it would have been in Chamber when Mm -hmm. he is actually cited for uh, the floating charm that Dobby uh, produces Um, in the movie he never gets uh, warned he he just it just kind of goes away in the book they specify this is not the first time that you've been warned about this and so you're expelled the book um, Phoenix was not out when uh, Chamber came out, so it's possible if the book had been out, then they might have done just one little letter saying, don't do this again, just to explain why Harry really can't. Because, mm. you know, knowing that it would then be referenced again later. 
But also, I'm uh, not sure if they if they actually go into this in the movie in the film. I can't I can't remember specifically. Uh, Dumbledore might say something, but the Ministry does not have at that point the power to expel students from Hogwarts. They can take their wand away. They can put them in Azkaban. They can do any of that stuff, but they can't expel them. The Ministry is going way beyond their remit already in this this one. If too many people hold a person or an institution sacred then they are, by definition, beyond criticism. And when a person or an institution is beyond criticism, then they will slip inevitably towards corruption. Umbridge actually straight out says, to question me is to question the ministry. The idea being that you're not allowed to question your own government, which is how tyrannical dictatorships start, or autocracies. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very familiar with this, and I'm fairly certain that Joe Rowling has suffered her fair amount of red tape in her time. And on that, we go to Umbridge. I can understand where she's coming from and how she desperately wants order at any cost, but she blinds herself to how incredibly weak that makes both the Ministry, Hogwarts, and the Wizarding World in terms of any kind of preparation for... I mean, not just Voldemort, for anything that could be a danger to them. The thing is, don't underestimate, though, how... Um, paralyzing fear is and to want rigid order is is to paralyze everything is you want everything fixed you want to be able to understand everything you want to have it all lined up and never to change and you don't seek that unless you are afraid of what that change will bring and the fact that um, I mean obviously Fudge epitomizes the ministry and, and Umbridge is kind of an extension of that um, the fact that he is in such denial about Voldemort and I mean to the point where you can show him all the evidence until he sees him with his own eyes he won't believe it and that I think is something that, that can only come through fear to, to the extent that he does it Umbridge herself is not concerned with loyalty in the same way that uh, Voldemort is. I mean, like I said last week, Voldemort's always seeking this loyalty he can never attain. It's not even that they're trying to, to rule by fear. The Ministry are just trying to get everyone to just stay still, do as you're told. Can't you see? It's better this way. The way that the, the story goes by Book 7, the Ministry's aims here, taken to their absolute extreme, are only really a hair's breadth away from what Voldemort had in store for them anyway. So it doesn't take much to push them into the darkness. Any more in Umbridge? With her kittens and her hateful, <coughs> hateful behaviour. I love I her like office. It's perfect. <laughs> it's I just, perfect. The pictures, <laughs> the pictures of the, the little kittens on the walls, just that slays me. I love it. Yeah, the, um, Imelda Staunton playing uh, Umbridge is fantastic. I think she's described as being a bit more frog-like in the book, isn't she? Uh, Yes, repeatedly. As being this fluffy pink nightmare. She's got this awful, sickly, cringeworthy demeanour. And when I first first started watching the film, I said to Lara, is she nice or nasty? And I went, hmm, nice. And it didn't take Lara long to go, hmm, I don't know. One of the uh, documentaries that we were watching was talking about how most of the characters that uh, Rowling writes, you can't judge a book by its cover, and they tend to have a lot of hidden depths, and they're more than just the one thing. And if they appear to be uh, particularly stern, they might have a soft heart. If they appear to be evil, they might actually have more complex reasons behind them. Um, Umbridge is is exactly like that, only it only takes ten seconds for you to realise that the, what she projects is not what she is, in that you could stand beside her and listen to her talk, and you're like, hmm... 
Okay, well, maybe she's, oh, no, my God, she's the devil herself. <laughs> There's uh, at least one deleted scene where she actually loses it at the end when, uh, with the, uh, the the kids in the forest, and she's just shaking with rage, and she's just so desperate to have order. And she, she's afraid, furious, and she's ready to use Cruciatus on Harry himself. She even says she's going to in the film. It's amazing that she goes into the forest at all with uh, with Hermione. She's, got, she's there on her own with a wand, uh, and there's two of them. And you'd think she'd bring goons with her. But the people she chooses are weak. This order they're trying to, to clamp down with is weak. All it takes is for people to go, I'm not going to do what you tell me. They don't know what to do. They can't clamp down on it. If you tell Voldemort, I'm not going to do what you tell me, he kills you. But the Ministry, despite all of its restrictions, can't control chaos. Hence Fred and George are able to get away. No problem. Well, you can't control chaos. Ultimately, that's that's the fallacy in that kind of mindset. You cannot control chaos. You can either adapt to it and work around it, or it will crush you. The thing is, you have created a world. It's the sort of definition of successful fiction, is to to have a world that somehow is circumscribed by its own rules, its own ethics, its own cultural flavour and smell and senses. And you've done this, and that's why... It's very common to hear about children and adults dreaming that they're in Hogwarts, dreaming that they are um, side by side with Harry and Ron and Hermione and so on. And naturally what comes as a result of this too is you get strange warning voices from people I always imagine with um, steel-coloured hair with a knitting needle stuck through it in a bun at the back, arguing that somehow this is dangerous for uh, people, Um, aside from the whole business of whether or not magic is dangerous for people, which I think we can ignore because it seems to come from such wild children. Of it's all part of that. Young, young ladies 200 years ago weren't allowed to read novels because it would inflame them and excite them and make them long for things that weren't real. And I, I remember being very distressed to read when I was quite young about Virginia Woolf being told she mustn't write because it, it would exacerbate her mental condition. We need a place to escape to, whether as a writer or a reader. And obviously the world that I've created is a particularly shining example of a world to which it's very pleasant to escape. That beautiful image in C.S. Lewis where there are the pools, the world between worlds, and you can jump into the different pools to access the different worlds. And that, for me, was always a metaphor for a library. I know Lewis wasn't actually thinking of no, that he when he wrote Christian it. Metaphor for of him. course. Yeah. But to me, that was to jump into these different pools, to enter different worlds. What, what, a, what a beautiful place. And that for, that, for me, is what literature should be. So whether you love Hogwarts or loathe it, I don't think you can criticise it for, for being a world that no, people enjoy. Precisely. I mean, that is, that is why it, it exercises such a keen hold on all our imaginations. Those. And, of course, it is a peculiarity that you will be accused both of creating a world in which children can luxuriate in an escapist fantasy and for creating a world that is frightening mm. because it's so full of wickedness and uh, danger and mm. that it could upset them. Uh, now, they can't, both, <laughs> they can't <laughs> both be true. But I do think it is one of the advances in children's literature that, uh, that you've made with this uh, remarkable series is that you have not held back from the difficult and the frightening and the, the treacherous and the unjust and all the things that most exercise children's minds. Well, I feel very strongly that there is a move to sanitise literature because we're trying to protect children, not from necessarily from the grisly facts of life, but from their own imaginations. I remember being in America a few years ago and Halloween was approaching and three television programmes in a row 
were talking about how to explain to children it wasn't real. Now, there's a reason why we create these stories, and we have always created these stories, and the reason why we have had these pagan festivals, and a reason why even the church allows a certain amount of fear. We need to feel fear. And we need to confront that in a controlled environment. That's a very important part of growing up, I think. And the child that has been protected from dementors in fiction, I would argue, is much more likely to fall prey to them later in life in reality. And also, what are we saying to children who do have scary and disturbing thoughts? We're saying that's wrong. And that's, that's not natural, and it's not something that's intrinsic to the human condition, that they're in some way odd or ill. Exactly. <laughs> it's a very it dangerous thing to tell a child. And guilt is the greatest trigger for aggression that man has. Absolutely. And if, if people grow up thinking they're peculiar for having dark thoughts or for being aware of the weirder side of the world and their lives, then that's going to make them awful human beings, isn't it? I totally agree. And one of the jobs of writing, in a sense, is to show you that you're not alone. Yes. Yes, it is. And certainly I discovered I wasn't alone through books, I think, arguably more than I did through friendships in my early days, because I was quite an introverted child, and it was through reading that I realised I wasn't alone in all sorts of levels. The Black House. So there's Creature here, and I'm going to talk about him in film seven because there's actually some really tragic events uh, that he's been involved with in the past. But the, the way he's written in the book, he's a hateful, horrible little racist, and he's kind of like every old man you've been sat next to on a bus, you know, complaining about kids or insert whatever ethnic minority you want to at this point and why they're ruining Britain. Um, you, you get racists in America, Leah? Um, you do remember that I spent 10 years in West Virginia, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's like one of the uh, racism capitals of the South. So, yeah, I mean, Creature's you know, a horrible little house up, but actually if you, if you find out about him a little bit more, there's some genuine pathos there. And then you get to see Sirius, and he's entirely different here to how he was in Azkaban. He's similar to how he was for that short frame when he was talking about um, going back to uh, Hogwarts a free man. But uh, mostly it's, it's like Gary Oldman's been away, and he's you know, read up on the character, and he's calmed himself down, and he's completely different now. It's a really great way of sort of rounding up the character and going, right, this is who Sirius is, and then you take him away. Emphasizing um, the aspect of home and family as well. They, the, when Sirius is talking, a lot of what he says to Harry in this is about, um, he, he talks to him at the train station, he talks to him about the order, and that was his, his old group of friends that he had around him. And then he talks about this family that he left, but they were family that he had, and this was a home that he left, but it was his home, and then he came back and he had James. And it's, it's almost like, and obviously he's doing it in a very kindly way, and he's, he's doing it with love and, and speaking to Harry about all these, um, these environments. Um, but it's kind of hammering home to Harry. You look, 
that I had all this and, and you should have had all this. You should have been a participant in all of these, um, these families, but you weren't, you know, you were, um, isolated from it. But I think it does reinforce for Harry as he comes back to at the end of the film that he does have his family. He's got his group of friends and that, you know, the people who are going to stand with him. And it may not be all the people that, that Sirius had, um, but it's, it's his own. Something else about uh, Sirius, and I think this was actually a necessary change to kind of make the loss a, a mean more, because I, I don't think that it would have as much if they if they'd done it as as much as as, when, as was in the book. Mm-hmm. But he's it's similar to how Harry is a lot more angry. Sirius is a lot more angry and moody and depressed in the book than he is in the film because he can't really do anything. And you get kind of little snatches of that, but like in the film when he says uh, something about um, giving how, how giving the house to Dumbledore as the headquarters of the Order is about the only useful thing he's been able to do. But that's you get a lot more of it in the book as to how he's really frustrated he can't leave because if he does he might be spotted uh, and in fact is spotted later on by uh, by Malfoy in his dog form but yeah you get a lot more emphasis on the fact that Sirius is really trapped at this point because he can't do a whole lot without either being noticed or putting himself in danger of being noticed because he's still you know very much a wanted criminal so he never really stops being a prisoner nope He's always a prisoner in some form or another. Mm. So that's basically why he oh. dies, basically. He charges out to, to actually do something, and then he runs straight into danger and gets killed. He's... I've just remember. I was thinking, you know, well, he wasn't back when he was a kid. He was in the Black House. He hated being yeah. in that family, and he ran away at the age of 16. So the first 16 years of his life, he was miserable. He was a prisoner trapped in a family full of racists. And then, what, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, maybe 21, I don't know exactly, I I can double check that year, but he had that short period of time where he wasn't a prisoner, and then he was sent to Azkaban. Well, it's pretty much mirroring what happened with Harry, uh, although on kind of a shortened timetable, Harry spent the first 10 years of his life a prisoner with the Dursleys. Almost literally, because they had him in the, the cupboard under the stairs for that long. And um, gets a taste of freedom when he goes to Hogwarts for the first couple of years and then has to go on the run again and is kind of trapped by that. It's kind of a warning then for him because, you know, however much he may hero worship Sirius and and look up to him as his godfather and, and want to be a part of his family... Sirius has played out this behaviour where he's, because he's been trapped so often, when he gets that little taste of freedom, the door opens for him, he runs out there without thinking, goes headlong into whatever's going on. I'd be willing to guess that those few years between um, him running away from his family and um, everything going wrong with Voldemort, where he was in the order and, you know, with James and they were fighting the bad guys, I bet he loved it. He was, you know probably straight up there in in every battle and every argument and it's easy to see how harry could go down that as well and ultimately it's what trips sirius up because he gets overconfident he's not thinking um he's he's forgotten where he is he's forgotten who he's with he's not acting like a godfather at that point he's not i won't say he's not looking out for Harry, but ultimately his role in that particular scene, he should be protecting him. 
and he isn't. He's next to him, he's with him, but he's seeing Harry as an equal and he's forgetting that he's still a kid and he still needs somebody to, to protect him and, and defend him when he can't defend himself. And that's what catches him out. And you get the, and this is not in the book at all, when he, uh, Harry does something and he says, good job, James, yeah, or nice job, James. one, James. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Um, and that, it's, it's like I said, it, you can quite easily see where Harry could end up being exactly, not like his father, but exactly like Sirius, being that impetuous person who, you know, sees freedom, grabs for it, and ends up getting you know, the world yanked out from underneath him in the process. Um, but, you know, something obviously within him doesn't take him down that road. This is the Black Family Tree. My deranged cousin. I hated the lot of them. My parents with their pure blood mania. My mother did that after I ran away. Charming woman. I was 16. Where did you go? In your dad's. He was always welcome at the Potters. I see him so much in you, Harry. You are so very much alike. I'm not so sure. Serious, when I was... When I saw Mr. Weasley attacked, I wasn't just watching. I was the snake. And afterwards, in Dumbledore's office, there was a moment when I... I wanted to... This connection between me and Voldemort. What if the reason for it is that I am becoming more like him? I just feel so angry all the time. And what if after everything that I've been through, something's gone wrong inside me? What if I'm becoming bad? I want you to listen to me very carefully, Harry. You're not a bad person. You're a very good person who bad things have happened to. You understand? Besides, the, the world isn't split into good people and death eaters. We've all got both light and dark inside us. What matters is the part we choose to act on. That's who we really are. We also get to meet Luna Lovegood uh, shortly after this, and it's like the character has been brought to life in in in, in, a, in a young actress. She's played by uh, Ivana Lynch, and I specifically remember Joe Rowling talking about how she got it absolutely spot on. And I, I never used to really adore Luna in the uh, the book, but then when I finally saw her on the screen, I was like, oh, that's how she should be played. Because see, in the book. I don't know, the way I read it, it's almost like she's saying things to get a reaction out of people. But in the film, the way she actually delivers the lines, I realized what Joe was originally going for. Someone who just says things and believes them, and not so much doesn't care about what other people think, but almost isn't connected to other people enough 
for what they think to make a difference. I think in Luna's case, there's her talking about the death of her mother actually is quite an interesting slant because, yes, she's obviously quite eccentric herself and obviously when we meet her father eventually, he's quite eccentric too, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, but there is also that element of having lost her mother at a young age. It's not had um, obviously it has at some point had a negative effect on her and she would have had that you know the the emotional side of that but her outlook on life seems to be very optimistic possibly in connection with that and and she seems to she's got more perspective than a lot of other kids her age would have because she's had this dreadful loss it's like there's an awful lot of stuff that she would just say is really not important enough to be worth her being worried about and other people not liking her because occasionally she says odd things I would imagine would fall in that category and her, how chilled out she is about all her stuff getting nicked and hidden and she says oh it's all in good fun which is a very mature way of looking at bullying effectively which is what it is mm. yeah. it's interesting because she doesn't take any of it personally No. sort of rises above it She's not a tormented girl. It's almost like almost nothing can get to her. When Bellatrix Lestrange actually appears to have tortured her at the, at the end of Seven, the film, she's just sort of taking it in her stride. She's a very unusual young person. And um, it's never really explained why Neville develops a, a thing for her, but it's, it's an odd coupling that somehow works. I would imagine it's because Neville takes nothing in his stride and he takes everything personally. And, and that side of her... Um, that is so, um, she's not phased by anything. She's not surprised by anything at all. And Neville is perpetually surprised. And I can see how he would want to reach out to the opposite of that and, and you know, make a connection with this person who seems to have managed to uh, absorb and assimilate things in a way that he just can't. It's someone he could definitely be himself around and never fear that he has to act in a certain way. Yeah. By, say, films five, six, or seven, stories five, six, and seven, he started to grow into himself and not be so anxiety-ridden anyway. So this, this kind of complements him, and it's, it's part of the growth of Neville. Mm. There's also film eight. quite a nice little moment, well, two little moments between them when they're in the Department of Mysteries. Mm. Um, he's sort of captivated by this Death Eater, and she sort of takes his hand and says come on let's go and then a couple of minutes later he does exactly the same thing for her she's sort of stood looking at the devastation and he comes back and grabs hold of her hand and they run off so it's like they've kind of they're, they're reaching out to each other in that bit which i thought was quite nice okay so dumbledore's army is formed harry has his first kiss now not being a 14 year old girl i'm not super hung up on this particular scene I never re I mean I liked Cho in the books but when, when I finally saw her in film 5 well she was in film 4 which she was nice but she's a bit of a wet in film 5 and she is a lot of a wet in the book she cries a lot <laughs> yes she does like a lot like, like a lot that's more the than only the book. Thing she does. That is pretty much the only thing. And that's even what other people say about her. Hermione goes, Yeah, she cries all the time. It's <laughs> a defining characteristic. Yeah. He could have been the man I married. You went out with him like <laughs> once. I mean, I, I totally understand being upset, you know, and but if you're really that upset, maybe you shouldn't be going after Harry. I'm just saying. 
Well, Hermione does sum up the various different things buzzing around in Cho's head. Apparently there were more in the, more even in the book. That's a great moment because it, it sums up both Cho and Ron and Hermione in one nice little uh, <laughs> sentence. Well, how was it? Wet. I mean, she was sort of crying. That ballet eye. I'm sure Harry's kissing was more than satisfactory. Cho spends half her time crying these days. I think a bit of snogging would cheer her up. Don't you understand how she must be feeling? Obviously she's feeling sad about Cedric, and therefore confused about liking Harry and guilty about kissing him, conflicted because I'm just rushing to sack her mum from her job at the ministry and frightened of failing her OWLs because she's so busy worrying about everything else. One person couldn't feel all that. It'd explode. Just because you've got the emotional range of a teaspoon. that is the fundamental difference between mid-teen boys and mid-teen girls that one of them grasps this the other one does not not all teen boys and not all teen girls obviously but it's it's a nice way of sort of showing that i like the um uh the patronus scene where they're doing expecto Mm. patronum and everybody's different animals come out that's quite yeah. That's kind of surprising to me, just because it's supposed to be so difficult to produce this Patronus, and yet, yeah. like, all of them are successful, at least part that, of That, yeah, there are, I mean, you see some of them have sort of just little white explosions coming out of the end of their wands. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> including the twins, who I think are the oldest ones there as well, so you'd mm. think that they'd be able mm. to manage something close. But of the people who do manage it sort of fairly quickly, Ginny... You can understand because they do go over the fact that she proves to be a lot more powerful than people think um, or that people assume. Hermione, yes, because she's damn good at every spell she tries and usually the first time. But Ron? Hermione is an otter. Ron is a dog. And Luna. And Luna is... A rabbit. At first I thought it was a rabbit. Could it be a March Hare? Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. (laughs) I think so, yeah. It's got very long ears, which suggests a hare. That, that's awesome if that is the case that's neat but uh, yeah I, I don't think that Ron will be able to either I mean ultimately maybe just his happy thoughts are that much simpler and easier to get to <laughs> Ron has no unhappy thoughts he just ditches them all out of his ear I'm a prefect this year Way. <laughs> I do like the fact as well in, in this middle section that, again, it's Neville who finds the room of requirement. Um, yeah, that was added for the film. Yeah. Originally it was Dobby yeah. who uh, told Harry. But um, the the idea that the room appears to, to people who have the, the deepest, you know, very deep need of it. Um, and I was thinking about this. Neville is the one out of all of them who needs this training more than everyone else um, because... Apart from Harry, Ron and Hermione, who you, you pretty much know are going to end up going up against the, the, the big bad, um, the rest of the kids could quite easily just stay in school, never get involved in any of it. But Neville, because of what he's been through, um, he's, got the, he's got more motivation than anyone else to want to go out there and challenge um, Voldemort and the Death Eaters because of what happened to his parents. Um, and he's got the least ability by comparison because... He, he does have this thing of everything goes wrong for him and, and nothing he ever tries turns out the way it ought to. And, and he, but he really needs that. And he's got the, the courage inside him. He's obviously got the potential. Otherwise, you know, he, technically speaking, he wouldn't be in Gryffindor. But I do wonder with Neville whether there's an element of um, 
almost artificial restriction that's been put on him by his grandmother um, because he's lived with her since his parents were, you know, mind wrecked. And I think it's quite logical to assume that a woman who had seen one of her children, either Frank or Alice, is going to be her child. Um, It's Frank. It's Frank, is it? Thank you. Um, Having seen that, she wouldn't want Neville anywhere near that and I think it's quite possible that Neville's actually got a lot more potential than anybody thinks but he's tried to inhibit it in him and encourage him to believe that he's less than he is and and try to get him to be unexceptional and somebody that no one would ever pay any attention to because that way Voldemort's never going to come after him and that would be the one thing she would want to avoid at all costs including Neville's self-esteem if that's the, the necessary cost at least it's keeping him alive yeah, that's the self-esteem is the main. I think the main thing he he needs it for because um in the I think the sixth book he says about the, he and Luna both miss the DA because they you know they actually have friends and be, feel mm. part of a group. Yeah. I think that's more important. He actually feels uh, belonged and you know actually important as part of a group. Yeah, which is kind of you, you see the. Uh, dramatic irony of that in the the last film, Neville turns out to be almost the most important person yeah. in the, the the pivotal scenes. This Jeffrey? Uh, yeah. Oh god, I've still got these on. I don't I don't need these. They're just for the character. Even if I did need glass in real life, you know, I I, I never read. All right. Oh. Oh. Fags. Yeah. You smoke, do you? Me? Oh, yeah, just a little bit. Here. You? No. No, no, no. Good girl, good girl. Very wise. I've got to cut down, really. (coughs) I've done it with a girl. What? I've done it with a girl, intercourse-wise. So, if you're looking for... Daniel! Here's my mum. Say they're your fags. What you doing? Uh, Nothing. She's trying to give me fags. What? No, I'm not. You should know better. You're old enough to be his mother. Yeah. And she was trying to have it off with me. Oh, well, of course she was. You're bloody gorgeous. Come on, you. A few more uh, bits about the film which I noticed up to this point. Uh, there's a lot of aerial shots in here, which for someone seasoned in TV drama is kind of unusual. It actually manages to serve the film to ground it more in reality. Um, specifically the scene in the courtroom. There's a really great, really high up, directly vertical aerial shot. It, it just it makes it seem not like it's just put together on a set, which is really skillful. I, I think it's the first film that I started them noticing that they were doing that more. They sort of start with that, and the first ever shot is basically a, a zoom in on the yeah. playing field. And actually, on that playing field, Harry's watching a, a small family and feeling hugely, hugely jealous. Um, Mathalda Hopkirk, who in this is voiced by... Jessica Stevenson. That is the particularly yeah. officious letter that uh, that shouts at Harry and tells him he's not an yeah. Archie's magic. Jessica Stevenson, obviously from Spaced. Mathilda Hopkirk did turn up in a later Harry Potter film. Anybody? She's the woman that Hermione turns into when they take the polyjuice potion to get into the ministry. Yes, yeah. that is exactly that woman. Um, the London broom chase. In the original book, they, they fly extremely high, which you would, because you wouldn't want muggles yeah. to see you. You wouldn't fly down the centre of the Thames, past a boat, and go, Hello, muggles! Yeah. Um, it's not entirely made clear that they're invisible. It would have been a good idea if they had been invisible, but since <laughs> invisibility cloaks are hard to come by, I don't think they were. 
Um, well, in the book, they actually make Harry invisible. Nobody else okay. is, but he is. I suppose it's then repeated for the beginning of book seven. Mm. Flying away. Again, it, it serves to anchor uh, Harry into our world. It's like saying, no, this is actually London. This is the, the London that you know. These are the Houses of Parliament. This is real. And it's mirrored in the beginning of film six where they destroy the Millennium Bridge. There's another bit with Umbridge as well, which I think I mentioned before in a, in a previous podcast, where she and McGonagall do this little dance on the steps where it's like they're trying to do one-upmanship on each other, and every time they have a point that exceeds the, the, the other, they sort of take a step up. And eventually, in your opinion, Sharon, McGonagall steps down because she doesn't want to be on the same level as her anymore. Yeah, um, the, the last thing, I can't remember what it is that Umbridge says, but McGonagall basically just stops and steps down and it is almost as if she's saying I, I'm not you know what I'm washing my hands of you just go away yeah I, I like that yeah I like that scene because Umbridge sort of personifies who she is by she uses the um, very great sort of intolerant person saying that she's, she is actually a tolerant woman like yeah mm. don't, if you say if you say that you've lost the argument it's shown that you're not it's like you're saying I'm not racist but um, <laughs> I also like yeah. the fact that Umbridge has to be one step up from McGonagall just to be level anyway, with that yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I call that. I, loved. I call that stair short. fights in my co- in in my notes. I call that stair fight. Totally. Stair fight. <laughs> Anyone else notice Aberforth Dumbledore in this film? Yeah, and the goat, and the many many goats. Yeah, it's, I want to know what the goat was doing behind the the bar of the pooping. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's uh, the the guy in the hog's head, folks. Just in case you missed it, the guy who just sort of stands there and then buggers off to the left, um, exit stage left, is <laughs> Dumbledore, who turns up as Kieran Hines in film eight, Dumbledore's brother. Nice little uh, mention there. Joe must have gone like, yes, they got him in. I'd be willing to bet he's on the list of things that she kind of dropped to them and said, look, if you can, I'm not going to give you anything else, but if you could just <laughs> drop this person in at this point. Back the hog turn, yeah. They spent ages putting together a really great moving um, animated hog's head, uh, you know, animatronic, and it was a practical effect, and you never even really see it move. It's just there. But it's, it, it should have been able to move its snout and look around and stuff. That would have been great. This is actually one of the things about the, the way the films are set up. And you said that um, uh, some of the way the shots were established seemed a little bit odd for somebody whose background was in TV. Mm. But... I actually think it's you can see his TV roots in something very, very key, and that is he constructs entire sets. Yeah. Because um, you, you look at the way that most films used to be done, and I'm going to say probably before around Lord of the Rings, because only because they did this, um, it, it was a very strong thing throughout Lord of the Rings, they actually would, they built the room mm. and then filmed within it. Um, and rather than just making a diorama, exactly. Rather than just you know, and, and pushing things out so that you can get the right angles on it. And um, but but with, uh, I think it's it's more often done with TV series. You actually because you're filming in rooms rather than on stages, mm. because that's what your budget stretches to. Um, so I, I wondered whether that had come from there a bit that he had this. Um, ability to film in enclosed environments and and he does it with the black household brilliantly well everything yeah. feels i mean i, I talked about this in three. talking about azkaban was it 
um, everything being sort of this narrow and tall and and fitting in between the Muggle world, and it's very very obvious in the in the Black household. Everything's tall, and the hallways are so tight you you can't imagine that you know two people can't cross in that hallway. <laughs> You'd have to back up and let them go past. But. Dan Radcliffe uh, in interviews, uh, who is always extremely enthusiastic about everything, and if you listen to him, has similar speech patterns to one James Batchelor, uh, was uh, talking about how, I really like the Black Household, I'd love to live there uh, if you didn't have all the skulls. And I was thinking, Dan, you're mental, that's the creepiest house in the entire world. <laughs> they do a great job of it, though, it, it just looks like it's, it's been lived in by, by people who are particularly gothic and gaunt for many, many years, but nowhere near as fun as the Adams family. There's one more thing. You noticed this before I did. When Hermione says Cho Chan couldn't take her eyes off you to her to Harry and they're walking along the bridge, guess who makes a face? Yeah, Ginny, yeah, I saw that. Ginny. <laughs> she looks well she doesn't pull a face, she just looks down yes. in, in a kind of a oh, way. So yeah. Uh, this is after book six had been published, so we already knew what was what was going to happen. And uh I mean, if nothing else, Joe may have told her, you know, you, you probably might want to be uh rekindling those feelings for Harry again in your character that you've been kind of muting for the past few films. It is subtle, but there are a few points where kind of you suddenly see something in Ginny that maybe wouldn't necessarily have been there if she hadn't if Joe hadn't said anything to them so I I think she probably did prime them a little bit um there's a bit later on as well where they're all coming out of the um where they've been doing the detention where they've all been writing lines yeah and Joe stood outside waiting to apologize and as they walk past, Ginny actually shoulder barges her a little bit, which seems Ooh. a little extra <laughs> for Ginny. She's not a particularly aggressive person. but Also, when uh, everyone leaves and, and Cho lingers to kiss Harry, Ginny, I think, leaves last of all and certainly doesn't seem to be particularly happy about it. Mm. It's fairly obvious to her what's going to happen. Occlumency. Soon after the uh, dream where um, Harry sees Mr. Weasley getting attacked by Nagini. They realise in the night that Harry has to be able to block his mind to Voldemort, so he has his occlumency lessons immediately after that, which is a change from the book. This is key. For, I think this is probably the most, apart from the Shrieking Shack bit, one of the most important Snape bits so far in the series. Alan gets to do some really good acting. There, there's a genuine tension between the two of them because Harry needs something from Snape, and it's nothing to do with schooling. And he's been told to do it by Dumbledore, and he has every reason to help Harry do this. But at the same time, his inner nature of, I hate you, boy, I hate you because of your father, is so obvious there. And that's how he managed to fool us for so long. There is a scene in the second Occlumency lesson where Harry turns it back on Snape, and you get to see young James Potter as a boy. And it, as it turns out, James, and for, I think Sirius was the one making him on, really were kind of bullies in ways that Harry and Ron have absolutely never been. Even Malfoy hasn't done that exact same thing. You can imagine Malfoy might do that to Neville. Actually, even more pronounced in the book, because he doesn't actually turn it around on Snape. In the book, when they're in the Aquamancy lessons, Snape uses the pensive to take out thoughts that he doesn't want Harry to see in case that very thing happens. So he gets called away for something, I don't remember what, but Harry is kind of looking at the pensive and going, I probably shouldn't do that, I probably shouldn't do that. Whatever you do, don't look into my forbidden cabinet of mystery. (laughs) Yeah, but then, you know, obviously goes ahead and does it, and there's a very, uh, a, a very 
kind of sad scene because you see it's not only it's it's the whole crew you know um Sirius and James and um Pete. Lupin and uh Pettigrew Even all four Lupin. of them yes and Lily's there as well and she you know, tells them off, and you get kind of a whole little backstory because Harry's left wondering, well, why did they even get married in the first place? Because it doesn't make any sense because it looks like she hated him. Right. Now, here's the interesting thing. She did not like James Potter at all. She was disgusted by his behavior at that point. Around about the time he was in his either final year or second to final year, his parents died, and he became a completely different person, which is leaves huge amounts of room for backstory to be written there. Mm. James could have been a complete git for most of his school life. and then Well, they kind of touch on that. I think I think it's Lupin who, it might be it might be serious, but I think it's mm. Lupin who, who Harry says something to, and he says, oh, yeah, well, um, it's, um, it, it's no wonder, you know, she really didn't like him up until yeah. much later. Yeah. Okay, so they, they do sort of mention that. However, and yeah. here's the interesting thing. They cast an actress for this scene. They shot some footage with Lily, and they didn't put it in. They didn't even put it in the deleted scenes. Now, I think, and it's fairly obvious if you think about it, it flags Snape's secret way too early. Because if you actually had a scene where Lily Potter comes down some steps and says, Put him down, James! And she's clutching onto her books, and just one flash of her eyes meeting Snape, you suddenly realise this thing that Joe has been trying to hold back for all of these years. So I think, if nothing else, Joe probably watched the scene as a rough cut and said, could you just stop it there? And then didn't explain why, but just said, I just think you should stop it there. Not saying any more, just stop it there. <laughs> Uh, I could be wrong. That is total supposition, but I do know that that young actress was cast. Just for the record, by the way, it's put him down Potter. She doesn't call him James at that point, I don't think. Susie Shinner did not appear as Lily in the film version of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, although a promotional image showed her in costume. So, yeah, like I say, that's total supposition, but I think that uh, that they just got a little bit too close to the deepest secret of uh, the Harry Potter series, and uh, we were just maybe asked to reel it back a bit. Stop it! Is this what you call control? We've been at it for hours. If I could just rest. The Dark Lord isn't resting. You and Blackie, two of a kind, sentimental children, forever whining about how bitterly unfair your lives have been. Well, it may have escaped your notice, but life isn't fair. Your blessed father knew that. In fact, he frequently sought to. My father was a great man. Your father was a swine. <laughs> Come on, Mooney. Go for Snape! Spelliarmus! Nice one, James. Oh, James, finish him off. Impedimenta. Right, who was I seeing me take off Sniggly's trousers? Your lessons are at an end. I did. Get out. Now, there's a prophecy in here, which they don't go into yeah, too much in the films. But the actual prophecy is this. And this was said by uh, Sybil Trelawney in, in the books. It's um, early 1980. And obviously in the films it would be early 1990. 
the one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches. Born to those who have thrice defied him, born as the seventh month dies, and the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal, but he will have power the Dark Lord knows not, and either must die at the hand of the other, for neither can live while the other survives. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord will be born as the seventh month dies. Let's go over that line by line, shall we? One with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches, so Harry's about to be born. This was early 1980, Harry was born July 30th. Born to those who have thrice defied him, born as the seventh month dies. Now, they never talk about this in the films, but book fans, who else are they also talking about? Neville. Neville. Uh, Neville's uh, Longbottom's parents, as well as uh, uh, Harry Potter's parents, thrice defied Voldemort. And they were both born at the very tail end of July. And the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal, but he will have power the Dark Lord knows not. Now, the Dark Lord marks him as his equal because he's heard the prophecy, and yeah. thus he marks him as his equal because he's, he's fulfilling a self-fulfilling prophecy. He will have power the Dark Lord knows not. He is blessed by a love-related old magic spell. And also just he is imbued with love, and love is present in his life. And ultimately that is power entirely non-magically related. You could also say that he's a Horcrux, which is a power that yeah, and know the, about. The, yeah, and that uh, Voldemort doesn't know about, yeah. And either must die at the hand of the other, um, so one's got to kill the other, and if ultimately both of them die at the, uh, the hand of the other, because Harry can't live while Voldemort survives, so Voldemort kills him, and then Voldemort can't live while Harry survives. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord will be born as the seventh month dies, just a reiteration of the earlier one. Now, they didn't really go into that too much in the film. As it transpires in the book, Voldemort only heard part of that. Yeah, I think he just heard the last bit or something, that the... Neither can live while the other survives. Or no, it's the it's the first bit he heard. Cause oh, okay. Isn't it the the person who overheard it then left? It was Snape. It was Snape, yeah. So yeah, all he heard was that uh, the one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches, born to the, those who have thrice defied him, born as the seventh month dies. So yeah, he heard that first portion. I don't even know where we're going from this. I think ultimately <laughs> that, that the prophecy itself complicates matters, and you have to go over it so much that they just kind of distilled it down and just put it in the uh, film, you know, just had most of it read out in the film. I think the they did cut out the middle bit, didn't they, in the film? Don't remember. Uh, yeah, born to those who have thrice... <laughs> Yeah, born to those who have thrice defied him definitely wasn't in there. Well, that wouldn't... You never find out about where that comes from, so that would just... They abbreviate it. But you can't really abbreviate a prophecy. That's the whole point. Abbreviating it is what slipped Voldemort up. You can't get the Cliff's Notes version of a prophecy that concerns you. This really bothers me. Mm -hmm. Why is this prophecy so important for Voldemort to have? I mean, why is it worth all of these people going in there? Why is it worth Sirius dying? Why? I mean, what is so important that it, oh, is he found this out? Yeah, oh god, he knows now that he has to kill Harry because he wasn't going to do that anyway. I, I don't get that. There isn't anything in the prophecy. Yeah, but he doesn't know presumably, that. I, I think but that's presumably, it. But presumably the Order members would. So why bother defending it? Just let him have it and let him get it and see that, oh, well, nothing really important in here. Why spend all this effort? Oh, now that's a fine point, actually. Why is it worth not letting Voldemort get hold of the entire prophecy? Yeah. But here's the thing. When I was reading the book, and it said that Harry's eventual conclusion was, um, one of us is going to have to kill the other, and was you know, saddened by this and somewhat surprised. And I think I just sort of got to the end of the book and said to Sharon, what? Either Harry is going to have to kill Voldemort or Voldemort's going to have to kill Harry. That was the big secret. 
Yeah, but for a 15-year-old to suddenly realise that he's going to have to commit murder in order to end this thing is quite big. Mm. He's ready to kill Voldemort, like, from the word go. He killed his parents. That's not a big deal. He knew either Voldemort was going to kill him or he was going to have to kill Voldemort. That's practicality. Being, Being ready to do something and knowing that you can't get on with your life until you've done it aren't the same thing. I think the other thing was the fact that it was a prophecy at all. I, I've, I've seen enough films with chosen ones. I've seen, I read enough books yeah. with chosen ones to go, oh God, another prophecy, another chosen one. Seriously, it would have been better if it had just been Neville in the end. More of a twist. I, the, the whole, when, if I hear the words chosen one one more time, I'm just going to stop what I'm watching and go away. That, oh, that. <laughs> I think just ultimately, it, Anakin Skywalker was one chosen one too many. It's in film six, isn't it, where. Um, <laughs> Hermione's saying, oh, you know, she only likes you because she thinks you're the chosen one. But I am the chosen one. And she smacks him with the book. Yeah, right, sorry. That is the correct reaction to anyone who is the chosen one. He's the chosen one. I can't not think of Homer in that um, episode where he joins the Stonecutters. <laughs> so yeah, that's the inherent uh, narrative flaw with a prophecy. It, uh, it unfortunately makes it seem like everything is written and everything is fated. And so what you're doing is just being along for the ride while uh, events play out. Hey, gang, what are we doing? Just be neater. Yeah, yeah, sweet. Look, thanks for covering my arse earlier. The offer still stands. What offer? Yeah. Just gonna go and get a drink, does Andy? Want anything? I'll have a cup of tea. Yeah, get me a bourbon, would you, babe? Well, I think it's mostly just teas and coffees. Oh, yeah, then get me a cup of joe, would you? And make it strong, I don't like the weak shit. Oh, Look, when she comes back, right, make some excuse and leave us alone, will you? What are your plan? You've unraveled it. Ready for action? Let's hope it's big enough. Can I have my Johnny back? May I have my Johnny back? May I have my Johnny back? Please. Yeah. It's not called a Johnny, though, is it? Durex? No. That's a brand name. May I have back my prophylactic or sheath? May I have my prophylactic? Tick. Tick. Prophylactic. Can I, can I have it, please? Yes. Oh, thank you. Dame Diana. Still gonna use it, yeah? Yeah, that'll be fine. Lucky girl. Bellatrix, a genuinely scary person. The only person who seems to approach what might be considered loyalty to Voldemort, uh, which, as I said to you earlier, Sharon, um, he's always seeking people to be loyal to him, but to be genuinely loyal to someone you have to almost you know you want to lay down your life for them and the only person who would do that for Voldemort is someone fanatical because his ethos is so skewed that the the best he can possibly hope for really is that they're so scared that he'll kill them that they'll do terrible things for him but Bellatrix would would do those things she actually even in the beginning of book 7 she cries with happiness just when he looks at her that she's not because she's insane she's not reliable he can't rely on her to do the things he wants her to do and he also can't rely on her not to suddenly get it into her head to do some crazy thing that he hasn't told her to do that could completely mess his plans up they handle her in a really interesting way in the film she does seem to have a split personality and it's not handled in exactly in the same sort of straight out there way that that 
you get with Gollum in, in uh, Two Towers, where it changes the camera angle and says, look, there are two people in here. It's not so much done more subtly, but she, she just changes her tone of voice and she changes her demeanour. You dare speak his name. You filthy off blood! And she's like suddenly just insane and angry. You're like, oh my God. And then you know, later on, at the beginning of film six, she's really lucid and she's really snake-like and in control of herself. So when she kills Sirius, her expression wavers between regret and satisfaction. Because it's almost like one side of her can deal with one emotion and the other side of her can deal with the other, but she can't mix the two. Well, she has just gotten out of prison at this point. Uh, yeah. Sirius was pretty crazy right after he got out, too. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying that she's not crazy anyway, but she's a little extra crazy here. Yeah. But, yeah, she's a, she's a genuinely frightening performance from the usually quite um, not terrifying Helen Bonham Carter. So when Sirius dies, I always feel... I think I was actually quite angry at this at the end of the book because um, it's such an unusual death, and it's just so sudden. I think in the book, doesn't she? She uses an unspecified spell, and he rolls down the steps and then into the uh, the, the void. And in the film, he sort of just—it's definitely a Vardakadavra, and he topples backwards and disappears into the void. You're so used to fantasy films where the whoever gets killed gets to die in the hero's arms, coughing their last. Uh, that you—it's—it's it's just so strange. And ultimately, it's it's accurate to, to how death really does suddenly come out of nowhere, and you don't get the chance to say goodbye. You don't get the chance to have the, the, the character eulogize themselves to you and say, at least I got to hold you one <coughs> last <coughs> time. It's cold, Harry. So cold. So cold. I can't feel my legs. There's none of that. It just happens. And so while I was initially angry with with uh, Joe in the in the book for just dispatching the character so coldly, it it's accurate. Now we approach the part of the film where I, it really began to overtake the book and the books in general to this point because the way they handle how Harry takes Sirius's death is really, it's measured. That he's screaming and all of the sounds been taken out apart from a, a couple of gasps and it's so emotionally wrought but it's just enough time for you to grieve on it before Harry's back on his feet again. It's pitched so perfectly, for me at least. I, I really like this bit, and it was far ahead of the book in terms of pacing. Yeah, that's that's how I like you know directors doing emotional moments, put music over it, and don't have screaming. Actors can't scream because because they've got they to do it seventy five times that day. Yeah, they have to do it perfect, um, or it just it's stupid. But if you put music over it and you can see them, you know, screaming, but you're, it's it's much more powerful. The reason I think it is, because I, I agree with you, I think that, that particular directorial choice works a lot better for emotional moments, but I think it's because when you're watching um, a, a moment like that, 
I mean, I, I can't speak from experience for something of that magnitude, but when a moment of extreme emotional intensity happens in real life, mm-hmm. everything kind of narrows and you get kind of tunnel vision about it and you can only think what's in your own head in that moment. And to, to be looking at someone on a screen doing an acted shriek and doing their own I never even got to say goodbye. Exactly. It, it really, for me, that really disconnects you from the emotion that's there, whereas this sort of almost crash zoom in and music or, or distant echoey sound effects kind of blanking out all other... Uh, noise or, or conversation or anything like that kind of gives you the opportunity to just have your own moment with that emotional occurrence. And then we get the uh, moment where Harry's bearing down on Bellatrix and isn't, um, isn't it in Bellatrix's case, in the book, she tells him to use a curse and says that he has to meet it, doesn't she? Yes. And in the film, it's Voldemort going, you've got to mean it, Harry. And he's goading Harry and he's trying to bring out in Harry that side of him he's all, he's trying to bring him over to the dark side yeah he's being, being, being the emperor basically yeah. so that's yes. the end. strike her down with all of um, your hatred unwittingly she's put a lot of Star Wars in there because Harry's the chosen one and there's a lot of light, light side dark side back and forth Sirius actually goes out of his way in this film to say people aren't all light or dark there's different aspects to us what what matters is how you choose to act it's a, it's a it's a good way of saying look george's way of just black or just white is is ridiculous it is just shades of gray everyone is han solo and that's that's ultimately the, the proof of the end here and this is when i sat up and really took notice the possession scene that's about to come up but first we got the wizard duel when dumbledore turns up it's almost like they sh- they need to go Yes, he's back! This, um, talk about Lord of the Rings again, this reminds me of the all flank fights so much. Because the, the black tiling, so, yes. it just looks like all flank. It's like, oh, see wizards fighting, um, I mean, Saruman's not as evil as Voldemort, but it's effectively the same. Yeah. And Dumbledore is Gandalf, so. And they had, they had that fight to better as well. Yeah. Both of which um, were inspired by that fight between Shalindria and Bav Morda in Willow, which ended up just being two old ladies scratching each other. That's awesome. That's so awesome. It's a great film. You should see it. Warwick Davis is in it. It's almost (laughs) paid for itself by now. And, yeah, you get this fantastic fight. And in comparison to Saruman and Gandalf, it actually, and I very rarely say this, it it surpasses Lord of the Rings in terms of spectacle, in terms of emotional intent, because you now know how much these two feel about each other. And Dumbledore does a very interesting thing here. I don't think it really happens any other time in the entire series. He calls him Tom. It was foolish of you to come here tonight, Tom. The orders are on their way. By which time I shall be gone. And you shall be dead. It, it could be seen as goading him. To, to me, it's, it's just Dumbledore trying to get Voldemort to snap back to being a young boy who was first brought to Hogwarts by Dumbledore himself. And just look, this is the relationship we started with. I came to you and I called you Tom. Is this how we're going to end it? Also, I think that's how Dumbledore still sees him. Because yeah, he, yeah. he's the... 
Dumbledore's always been the person who's been very rational about Voldemort and, uh, you know, use his name. He's just a man. He, he may be a very powerful man and he may do very, very horrible things, but he's, he's not a demon and he can be defeated just as any other man can be defeated. And I think calling him Tom emphasizes that. And, and for Dumbledore even makes it not even he's just a man, but he's just a boy. It's like that bit in Kung Fu Panda where it flashes back to uh, when Shifu and uh, Tai Lung were fighting, and as Tai Lung leapt at him, he became his little leopard kid form mm. in, in Shifu's eyes. Yeah. He was this student that he picked up in the first place. There's a lot going on in this fight, as all the best fights have. And it's elemental as well. They use earth, fire, wind, and water. Almost heart. And actually, Harry uses hearts! Brilliant! Go planet! <laughs> So all we need is for Captain Planet to come down through the skylight and kick Voldemort in the face. Basically, yes, that, that would have been the coolest ending ever. So, yeah, it's, it's exceptionally symbolic. And then the possession. Now, I haven't read the, uh, the book for years, and I've never read it once. The possession scene never got to me like it does in the film. This is truly exceptional uh, uh, Harry Potter filmmaking up to this point. It, it, was, uh, it had never really gotten to this level, but the, being able to tell a story through pictures and actually show conjoining parts between Harry and uh, Tom's lives, how Voldemort is infecting Harry when Harry's looking in the mirror with Voldemort's face and then you get that little twitch and you realise that Harry's been doing it repeatedly throughout the movie Harry so weak so vulnerable look at me It isn't how you are like. It's how you are not. Harry zeroing in on, on the, the people that he loves and the, the things that he has done. It's, it's a truly emotional, for me, truly wonderful moment of Harry Potter and set the tone for the next three films. Uh, at the very end of it, when uh, Harry actually manages to break contact with Voldemort, he breaks the mirror, uh, symbolically saying, Look... The, the similarities between us aren't in any way as important as you think. You're the weak one. And you'll never know love. Or friendship. And I feel sorry for you.
I suppose there are times when you, you know, uh, and I, I think I mentioned this to you when, when I first read The Order of the Phoenix was, you have to be so cruel to him. I mean, d- well, d- Phoenix, it, I, I would it, say in, in, in self-defense, <laughs> Harry had to, because of what I'm trying to say about Harry as a hero, because he's a very human hero, and this is obviously a, there's a contrast between him as a very human hero and Voldemort, who has deliberately dehumanized himself. And Harry, therefore, did have to reach a point where he did almost break down and say he didn't want to play anymore, he didn't want to be the <laughs> hero anymore, and he'd lost too much, and he, and he didn't want to lose anything else. And so that Phoenix was the point at which I decided he would have his breakdown. Right. And now he will rise from the ashes strengthened. It is such a primary energy, particularly with children, and we lose it, I suppose, at our peril, the outrage at injustice, mm. which is one of the primary um, sort of motor forces in, in all the books, isn't it? The feeling of a 12-year-old boy that they've been unfairly accused, the, the burning sense of outrage, you're right, we shouldn't lose that, yeah. but we do, often, yeah. adults do. Yeah. No, that's quite right. So let's talk about differences from the book briefly, because there are lots. There is a huge amount. In fact, we spent 45 minutes to an hour at the beginning of this show just listing them and working out which were the most important ones. So there's plenty more than what we've got here, but these are the important ones. And feel free to mention them on the forum. Okay. In the book, after Harry explains how Dudley was attacked by a Dementor and Vernon asks what a Dementor is, Petunia blurts out the explanation, leading both Harry and Vernon to wonder how she knows this. That would have been interesting if she'd actually done that. Harry and the others cleaning Grimoire Place is omitted. This omission removes the event involving the discovery of Salazar Slytherin's Locket, which does not prove to be important until the seventh book and film. My God, I didn't know that until I read it today. I'd completely forgotten it. It's just in a list of stuff. They're like, well, we found this, we found this, we found this locket, we found, we found this, we found this. It's, yeah. it's not made a big deal out of it all. When Harry, Ron, and Hermione first see a Thestral, Neville is with them. Neville shows no sign of being able to see a Thestral, even though he can see Thestrals in the books. In the book, after the kiss between Cho and Harry, Hermione gives a much longer list of reasons why Cho was crying, including her being worried about getting kicked off the Ravenclaw Quidditch team. In the film, the list is shorter, but Hermione says that Cho is worried about failing her owls. But Cho, in the books, is stated as being a year ahead of Harry, so she should have taken her owls already. Also, Hermione mentions that Cho's mum worked at the Ministry, even though it was Marietta Edstrom's mum who worked at the Ministry. However, as Marietta was cut, her parts had to be taken by Cho. In the novel, Dumbledore's army is discovered because Marietta Edgecombe, a member and friend of Cho Chang, tattled to Umbridge. In the film, Cho is duped into revealing the truth via Verita serum. She drugs her students. And Umbridge and the Inquisitorial Squad, scariest name ever, break into the room of requirement using Bombarda Maxima, which did not happen in the book. Also in the film, this is used as a reason for why her and Harry break up. She tortures her students. The drugging yeah. is the least of it. <laughs> She's despicable. Grawp is portrayed as very gentle, whilst in the book he is very violent and even strikes his half-brother Hagrid in the face during his appearance. Now this is significant to me because I really didn't like Grawp in the books. I was, he was a tiresome character. I, I was getting sick of Hagrid being this naive about things that could, were just as, seemingly purely there to inflict harm. And yet Hagrid still has his face all messed up when he comes back. They never really explained that if he yeah. was, if the same excuse is true. Well, it could just be that Grawp knocked him accidentally or something. Yeah, I think in the film, when he rushes towards Hermione, he basically knocks Hagrid over, but it's not like a conscious thing. It's just, push yeah, through, I'm much heavier than you. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, it's like a child just running at your legs. <laughs> it's, it's an odd one, because there's really no reason to even feature him in the film at all. 
because ultimately the giant thing doesn't pay off. Um, uh, Voldemort recruits the giants and they are, take part in, within, on the Death Eaters side at the Battle of Hogwarts, but no one actually says anything about it. There's no, no visit to St. Mungo's at all, so we don't get to meet Neville's parents. They're just talked about by Neville in, a, in a, admittedly, a very emotionally wrought scene, which I think was actually very good and well handled. Mm-hmm. Leah, you notice this one. Umbridge and Fudge attack Hagrid in his hut. Yeah, that's uh, pretty late in the movie, and um, or pretty late in the book, rather. And um, they... I'm not 100% sure that Fudge is there, but Umbridge definitely is. They go in with the intent to remove him from the grounds, and um, they're actually taking their, uh, the students are actually taking their astronomy exam at this point, so it is at night, and that kind of gives an excuse as to why they can see what's going on, because they're, I guess, up on the roof, and can see... Um, the spells that are being cast at him and they explain it away as Hagrid's giant blood would have allowed him to repel these stunning spells and um, the the ultimate result (laughs) but the ultimate result of that is um, actually McGonagall goes out and is headed for them and is turned on by the people trying to remove Hagrid and she takes three or four stunning spells at once and has to be sent to uh, the hospital None of you just did. knocked an old lady on her back, you <laughs> monsters. In the book, after being caught by Umbridge during his attempt to break into her office, she revealed to Harry that and his friends that she sent the Dementors to Harry discreetly without Fudge's knowledge as a way to discredit Harry. In the film, the one responsible is a mystery that during the Wisengamot scene, Dumbledore speculated it could have been Voldemort. You don't get the scene where Harry confronts nearly headless Nick and asks him, could Sirius come back as a ghost? I suppose because that was just there to satisfy that particular narrative contrivance, which uh, she'd set up years beforehand and then had to kind of explain. And uh, if people were asking that question, then you could just go to the book to find out. In the book, Harry Potter loses his temper with Dumbledore after Sirius Black's death and smashes his possessions, which did not happen in the film. Now, that's after he's gotten rid of the anger that Voldemort was instilling in him. So how does that play out in the book? I mean, pretty much just like that. He is, he's still angry. It's, it's like we were saying in the very beginning. It's not all magical causes. He's just angry and frustrated because bad things are happening to him. A lot. Understandably so. They also explain the whole home protection deal at that point. There's a lot of explanation at this stage. Which I think they managed to boil down into just a few sentences in the film. But uh, what's the actual deal regarding um, Petunia and Vernon? Harry has to be able to call the Dursley's house his home, and in order to do that, he has to go back there at least once a year, and it has to be there, not just somewhere, not just to the Weasleys, not just to people he can consider family, perhaps, but it has to actually be of his mother's blood, because that's how the protection works. He has to be with Petunia because uh, of the the blood that she shares with uh, his mother. That makes me think of... Yeah, I hate them, but, you know, they're my family. And this whole notion that you, you know, because you're connected to someone by blood, you are obliged by said substance to, uh, you know, maintain contact with them no matter how much you hate them. But that's, again, for looking at it from a psychological perspective, that means if, if you do um, go along with that and you do uh, feel that you are obligated to certain people because you're related to them by blood... That means that no matter where you go and what happens to you in your life, there will always be somebody somewhere who is 
who has that connection with you and that for some people is very very important anchors you to the world mm. um, there's no Rita Skeeter interview clearing his own name and outing various Death Eaters uh, and in the film Dumbledore's explanation of the prophecy is diminished to just one word when he confirms to Harry that either he or Voldemort will have to kill the other I want to know why the Dementors don't have cloaks. That carriage waits for them to finish their conversation before and it goes. Moves. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to wait. Okay. So are you ready now? No. The, okay. uh, the last thing about the room of requirement. How does Neville disarm himself? I don't know how weakening Sal makes the spell that's already left their wand rebound or something. I don't know if it's on a wire or something. He does this really weird lunge. I just call the creeper lunge. He sort of goes. <laughs> also, actually, in the first bit, he looks like he's about to start dancing. Yeah, there's also a teleporting bicycle bell in that scene as well. Yeah, it jumps yeah. straight. <laughs> God, you it... could be on gaff.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it actually, really reminds me of uh, Lord of the Rings. I'm going to pick it very up, bring it up again. How um, did? Ha- yeah, how does death? Haldir is my favourite character in Lord of the Rings, and I of think, all the characters, yes. like, Haldir is awesome. I know because he's in the book. He's in the book more than. Why well, really? Like, why is Dumbledore uh, not Dumbledore? Voldemort in a cloud visualizer, and he basically hisses. He goes, ah. yeah, that's really fun. That I don't know why that was in. Our time. Or either cut it out or made it longer so it wasn't just like... Or made it better. Uh, <laughs> you made it better. So you just cut away for one second and he goes... <laughs> yeah, it's just... I working. don't want to see that video because I know exactly what you're talking <laughs> about and it is extraneous um, it's, and it could have been it, done better. But it's really funny. Death Eaters come and Old Watt leading them and Hagrid holding Harry and then... Basically, Neville just steps forward, cuts the head off a snake, and then they all go, ah. In this, he, they, they do a weird subplot of hunting the snake. It was so much more dramatic where he just steps forward, chops the head off, and then he's the one that basically kills Voldemort. Kills the last main piece main piece well, of Horcrux. I, I don't see how that's not in the film. Because well, he does cut her and the guinea's I know, off. It is the last stroke, just, and it's the thing that does kill Voldemort. It's just far less dramatic, and it... it it's less dramatic? Yes. <laughs> Anything else? Uh, the only other thing is Yumpy. Yumping. Y- yumpy. Y-U-M-P-Y. Oh, yeah. We, Me and the Yumpy dozen back in Surrey, little whinging <laughs> posse, the crew. There's me and Big D, fingers. Yumpy. 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 It's because... gone Yumpy. Yeah, he's got the other... Oh, every time I take off my, my headphones, I have to take off my Gryffindor scarf as well, because they're... <laughs> You know, every, everybody in the series is consistently saying that Harry has his mother's eyes. Well, given the Hang actress... On, just, uh, just say that again, because... <laughs> did anyone ask you? Yes! There was a slight buzz, exactly as you said it, and you apparently said that Harry has his mother's thighs. Yeah, not exactly what I said, but... Um, no, it did sound like Sirius's magic clothes. This is a callback to episode three. Anyone else notice... Yeah, uh, yes. the, sh- the shadow, yeah, he just... The shadow of a fully clothed Sirius as he transforms back from a dog. He has a coat on, which does what when he transforms again? I'm assuming uh, he turns into a dog inside the coat. It looks kind of black and fuzzy, uh, maybe. <laughs> like dog fur. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's what they were going for. Uh... Maybe it's a question you don't ask. 
I guess. It looks like a woman's coat. It doesn't hang on him very well. <laughs> you have a woman's coat, my lord. <laughs> yeah, I'll warrant exactly. that coat has never been used to form the fur on a black dog. Actually, the weaker Skeeter cat turns up a coat certainly has, and I'm quite pleased about it. <laughs> I think I just missed that entire conversation. The thing that makes that seem better is that it's, that's Doctor Who doing that. It's Tom Baker. Oh, yes. And then he morphs into Barty Crouch Jr., <laughs> series two is really good. Yeah, I like series one as well. You like series, like series one? Yeah, I like series one. Oh, it's, it's not Blackadder. Bells and bubbles. Better a lap dog to a slip of a girl than a git. Okay, we're done. <laughs> Everyone sounds absolutely exhausted. Yeah. I've okay. been able to smell dinner for the last half hour. Oh, oh God, you didn't tell me about you. dinner. Well, I didn't know three hours ago. <laughs> Okay, I think that will do it for us this week. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, would you like to pimp your shows and things? I am editing uh, GamerDork.net right now, so you can um, look at my stuff there. Uh, I'm part of the Ninja Fat Pigeons community and podcast. I'm part of the Gonzo Planet community cast, and uh, I've done a, an article for the, uh, for the site as well. And I can be found on Twitter, which is Leg of Time. Um, I have a few bits and pieces of writing on Gonzo Planet, and hopefully we'll have more soon. And we will be back next week for Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. You've been listening to the Digital Gonzo Harry Potter podcasts. Something worth fighting for. <laughs>